0: Welcome to our new podcast, Discovering Community Psychology, a podcast hoping to make community psychology ideas and practice more accessible. Throughout our first mini series, we'll be speaking with numerous psychology professionals about their work, highlighting and celebrating variety and the impact of their positive practice, influenced by community psychology ideas and values.
1: Hello and welcome to our podcast this evening. My name is Juliette Young. I'm a, a trainee clinical psychologist.
2: And I'm Gina and I'm also a trainee clinical psychologist.
1: We're not just alone tonight here. We've uh, we've got a couple of people from our collective who are going to be uh, listening in the background and they're going to be writing some comments on, on our chat which we may well be putting into this recording as well and asking these questions. But the person that we are going to be speaking to and, and having some dialogue with tonight is uh the wonderful Diane Bell. Um feel very lucky to have her here. Um and I, I guess um the best thing to do is probably let Diane introduce herself and her work.
0: Thank you, Juliet and Gina. Um it's really good to be with you and to be able to contribute to this amazing platform that your collective has created. Um, I had the privilege of teaching Juliet and Kirsty when I was um, teaching community psychology at UEL. And I am currently a senior lecturer at Nottingham Trent University. And I think of myself increasingly as a decolonialist because that is the trajectory of the work that I'm doing, which is, of course, a space in which we utilize community psychology theories and praxis tremendously. So I'm still working with community psychology principles, um, but just differently these days.
2: Thank you, Diane. I guess you've talked a bit about uh, decolonization, which hopefully we'll come back to. Um, but just in terms of the the principles of, of community psychology and a bit about your work, um, what what's the story that brought you to these these sorts of pr- principles and, and to working into in a community psychology way?
0: Eugenio you know, I entered into a doctoral program one of the few I think in the world that brings together community psychology, eco-psychology, which is something not a lot of people study, and liberation psychology. And I thought I would be learning about Most, it's a university that's very focused and um, it's a depth psychology program. So you can imagine that people engage a lot with what is unseen and what is not spoken. So very much semi-conscious and unconscious experiences of life. And I didn't think about community psychology or liberation psychology before I got there. And I remember being in a phenomenology of liberation psychology course with Mary Watkins and being absolutely blown away by reading Franz Fanon, who was a Martinican um, philosopher and psychoanalyst. And it's the first time that I had read anything psychological. From someone from the global south and someone who was black, and I had just never heard that perspective before. And when I say it blew my mind, I mean that almost literally like my mind expanded. It's as if I was living in this small little bubble with a really tight horizon, and then all of a sudden I could see the social world and the psychological effects of that social world on people almost at once. So it was um, one of those experiences that I'll never forget. And one of those experiences that has marked me and that was probably um, 13 years ago. So it's really been something very um, important. So that's how I um, bumped into Community psychology, if you will.
2: Thank
1: you for that. Thanks. And what does it, I guess, as an extension of that, like, what does it mean to you? What does community psychology mean to you? And well, let's do that first. And then I've got a follow up to that as well. That's
0: a really good question, Juliet. I think it means a lot of things to me. it's it's one of the theoretical frameworks that allows us to think about to bring psychological insight to bear on decolonizing the world. So I think decolonizing the world is the work of this period in our life globally. That is rehumanizing the world breaking the hierarchies that have been produced through racism, classism, heteronormativity, ableism, ageism, you name it. But doing that work, like anything else in life, involves our psychic life. And so community psychology and liberation psychology bring psychological insights to bear on creating a truly equal world. So Decolonization work that doesn't take account of the psychological effects of coloniality and that doesn't utilize the enormous psychological capacities that we have to create equality, that to me is a nonsense. That's a non-starter. So for me, decolonization work must include the psychological and community psych- critical community psychology and liberation psychology offer us that or make that contribution. That's really what it means to me at this point.
1: And you, you speak about that with a lot of passion. And I think one thing that is, I, I'm kind of, yeah, hearing is that that comes from your heart. That is that is your work. That is, that is kind of at the root of this. And I think that, you know, that's really inspiring to hear about. Um, I think uh, something else that, um, would be really useful to hear. It would be about some of the work that you've done. Um, I know that um, when you were, you know, you were one of my lecturers. Um, you talked a lot about participatory action research, and that was something that was was really, really. Um, I guess when when I was learning about it, I was kind of having like, what? How can we? How on earth can we do research any other way that is meaningful and 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 um, that is not. Um, I can't think of the words, but is is kind of not um, disempowering. And and I think I went on a bit of a journey of that. So I wonder whether within that you'd be able to explain to others um, what participatory action research is, but also give some examples of your work. So participatory action research, if we break it down, really is
0: how we do inquiry, how we ask questions, how we develop new knowledge, but it's, democratic inquiry. It's based on us doing knowledge seeking with other human beings. It's not the top-down approach that is typical, and certainly that universities across the world, but particularly in the global north, um, subscribe to, which is that researchers are the folks who live in the Iver Tower, who are within the university, and other people don't do research. That's a nonsense. Across time and across the globe, human beings ask questions and that's what research is. But of course we formalize it um, within the academy. So participatory action research is a way of going about doing inquiry with other people on a horizontal basis. But what's crucial about it and what's beautiful about it is that it's not it's reason for being is not simply to ask questions and then develop new theories or or produce research outputs. It is actually and crucially about transforming the world. It's taking action. And so, you know, the A in PAR is the action part. So every piece of research that is done that has integrity and that is from the perspective of participatory action research, has those three anchor points to it. it. It has people doing the work together in collaboration with each other. It has inquiry, so asking questions that we genuinely don't know the answers to. And then it has social action as the as the ultimate of, of outcomes. And the social action is actually transformative action. That's a really crucial um, aspect to it. And participatory action research, is something that you know we get from different sources. It's very interdisciplinary, certainly Kurt Lewin, the German um, psychologist contributed to it, as did Paulo Freire and his ideas on um, developing critical consciousness. But participatory action research would be nothing without Orlando Files Bordeaux, who is a, social, um, a sociologist. So it, it brings these different rivers or streams of thought together produce this amazing way of us being able to develop new consciousness about old seemingly intractable problems. That's that's it in a nutshell, I think. In terms of my work, um, once I got introduced to participatory action research, I think I developed such a distaste for doing work without those principles that I would almost say that work that doesn't do that for me um, generates bile. (laughs) Literally, I have a very visceral response to it. Having said that, I want to almost immediately um, go against what I just said, because not all of my work is participatory action research in a formal sense, but all of the work I do has the desire or the impulse to be liberatory. And so for various reasons, um, full participatory action research isn't something that I've always been able to do, but um, my heart and soul is in doing work that contributes to our liberation, which means that it's decolonial. So the work that I did for my doctorate, my PhD was actually looking at The psychological, I created a psychological portrait of how we bystand coloniality. So how we do not see coloniality as it rips through and shreds human beings' lives. And oftentimes that we can see that readily when we think of state violence, um, whether it is what happened, the state violence that happened at the Capitol in the United States last week, Wednesday or whether it is state violence that happens here in the UK when the police, for example, stop and search um, in a disproportionate way, particularly black men in the UK, it can be how the disproportionate murder of young black men in Jamaica. And what we see, of course, in those examples, except for what happened at the Capitol last week is how race and class and and gender are inscribed over this um social suffering and so um i have lost my train of thought what was i saying
1: i i guess i mean you were, you were talking about how coloni- how coloniality is is so ingrained in society and you, there's very outwards um you can see it in, in kind of how the police use their powers against young black men, but you, there's other things which are, I think you were aiming for the kind of other things which are more quiet and, and, and or not quiet, but perhaps not as explicit. In, that's in that's exactly that right,
0: right, Juliet, thank you. Because I think I was riffing off of the work that I did for my doctorate, which was looking at um, how we bystand um, coloniality. And, and that wasn't participatory action research, although it was l- liberatory. That was engaging people who weren't invested in asking that question with me, but were willing to tell me what they knew about um, their experiences of overlooking things. So we can, I think we can make contributions and c- contribute to the development of more knowledge about coloniality, even when the work isn't participatory action research in its formal sense. And then in Jamaica, a horrific human rights atrocity occurred in 2010 when the government moved into a community that's called an inner city community. And in four days, the state killed. The community says over 250 people state Um, official figures are um, 73 civilians in four days. That's the largest number of civilians killed by the Jamaican state since an 1865 rebellion. So it's a horrific human rights atrocity. And people once again turned away. And they turned away because these are what we call in the decolonial world disposable bodies. These are people who do not count These are people who, because of the hierarchies that we live with, um, racism and classism, that it's easy to commit atrocities against some people. And so along with an anthropologist and a cultural worker, we created a platform for people to tell their story from that community. And we created a film and we created a multimedia art installation. for people to tell their story in their own words, on their own terms. And I've written about my involvement with that um, project. And more recently, um, I'm about to start a project called Transforming Inequalities at NTU. And this is just a case study because, of course, Nottingham Trent University, where I teach, is no different from other universities in the global north and there are gross inequalities between white middle-class students at universities in the global north and historically marginalized students. Historically marginalized being people who, whose lives have been horrifically blocked by racism, classism, sexism, heteronormativity, ableism, age, ageism, etc. So, what i'm tr- what in that project what i'm interested in looking at is engaging with students and staff and hoping that people will start to name coloniality and also i want to hear their dreams for decoloniality we have all heard of decolonizing the curriculum and that's a movement that's a moving across the world it emerged in south africa Students there who asked, you know, demanded that roads must fall as an iconic colonial figure, and also that fees must fall, which, of course, is a stand against classism, that universities do not, should not um, be free or should not be priced in a way that allows people who don't have tremendous means to access a university education. And they fought against it. And it's it's taken off across the world. And so I want to contribute through this project to mobilizing people's voices and critiques about the university system in the global north and sharing their ideas about how we can decolonize, it. because I don't think people with power within the university system can successfully decolonize the university I think it requires a a democratic process to do that so I'm involved in in that and then I'm involved in other pieces of um decolonizing the university work here at NTU so that's that's what I'm up to these days
1: that that community psychology work is very much um I guess it's that it's we, we've had some people on the podcast talking about the community psychology work they might be doing in NHS settings or that they might be doing in charity settings. Actually, the, It sounds like the community psychology work that you're doing is very much at, like an institutional level at the, within the institutions at the moment. And that's, that's a really interesting um, and valuable uh, explanation of your work. So thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you. Just to, to add to that, Deanne, it's just it's really inspiring to hear about your your participatory action research. And I guess what you were saying about using research as as an approach that emphasizes social action and transformative action rather than seeing research as a process just of, of gathering knowledge or understanding a phenomenon. I think I think that's yeah, it's really powerful to hear about, about your work with that. And I guess you also talked about how your, your, your participatory action research contributes to our liberation. Um, and, and you touched upon liberation psychology. And I just wondered if you could exp- expand on that. Firstly, for, for people who aren't aware of what liberation psychology involves, what, what does that look like? And also, just if you've got any more examples, that would be great.
0: Well, Gina, liberation psychology is unapologetic. About analyzing the world and naming oppression as part of the lived experience of the majority world, it has one of its forefunders, Ignacio Martin-Baró, spoke about the need to prioritize the poor, and so that was an anti-classist position taken by a social psychologist. And what he was pointing to is something that critical community psychologists know and talk about, which is that there is a middle class bias in mainstream psychology. And we need to turn, literally turn our attention toward historically marginalized people, people who do not have the resources, but who are what um, is called social suffering, who are experiencing social suffering, we need to, as people who say that we have pro-social values or democratic values, we need to actually put our emphasis on people who don't have access to the psychological resources that they need and also because Critical community psychology and liberation psychology do not are, are not frameworks through which only psychological life is the ambit of experience. It's also social life. It's also political life. It's also cultural life. It's also what I'm talking about in terms of the um, higher education is a significant contributor to coloniality. So it's it's education and knowledge production, it's the justice systems. These projects that I was talking about before in Jamaica have everything to do with it, not the justice system, but the injustice system. So healthcare, of course, we all know, and COVID makes us too painfully aware of the inequalities in healthcare, not only in the NHS, but across the world. And on and on and on, we could go. but. What liberation psychology does um, is ask us to turn our attention towards oppression, to be unapologetic about naming oppression when we see it, and to not think that oppression is something that happens over there in the so-called third world. Oppression happens in the United Kingdom. Oppression happens in the United States. Oppression happens across the global north in as much as it happens in the global south
2: thank you for that i think that's yeah really powerful words and i guess when you were talking about the, the inequality and systemic inequality I, I guess i was also thinking about covid and how that's exemplified that and um, the differences between people who have access to, to healthcare and who don't who who experience deprivation and and some of the, the wider consequences of, of inequality, I guess. Um, following on from that, really, how how do you what do you see for for the future of community psychology in a in a post COVID world or even in a world where COVID continues to to affect us? What 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 do you see that
0: as looking like? Well, I think we can use the principles of community psychology, and we can use the insights of community psychology when we are in this hyper-digital environment that we are living our lives in currently, but also when you know, we're able to be face-to-face again. And I think for many people, The experience of COVID is a manifestation of collective trauma. And I believe that community psychology is one of those sets of ideas and praxis that can help us to respond in situations of collective trauma. And I think that's one of the tasks, actually, of psychologists now is to not ever forget that individuals are in distress, but to also tool ourselves with the ability to work with people who are experiencing collective trauma. And by collective trauma, of course, I'm, I'm speaking about as Kai Erickson so beautifully articulated about when we are living in social worlds in which social bonds are broken. And we've seen so many social bonds broken. And you may say, well, where are those bonds broken? And inequalities always tell us about brokenness. I I think Um, they speak of broken realities as as a someone who has done work against the US Mexican border and i'm thinking now of a Jesuit practitioner who against that border is asking us to engage in a process called psychosocial accompaniment psychosocial accompaniment is also something that Mary Watkins has very recently written an incredible book. And um, I I encourage folks to plunge into that book. It's on mutual accompaniment. And what Mary's arguing is that those of us trained in, in human services work, and that's what psychologists are trained in, that we can actually equip ourselves to go out into these broken realities, out into the world and work with people, a very community psychology principle. That is not that we don't have, we aren't trained and we don't have skills, but the truth is that I think we have been living in a pandemic of anxiety and depression across the world for quite some time. And this is despite, there being an increased number of clinicians. And despite there being certainly from big pharma and elsewhere, the an increased dispensing of psychotropic meds. And so we have more human beings working in mental health. We have more um, psychotropic responses to depression and anxiety in particular but yet still, we're not seeing less depression and less anxiety. We're seeing increases across the world. And I think not that we should ever stop doing psychotherapy, individual or group, not that we people shouldn't have access to psychotropic meds, but I think we need to be willing to say that these responses are not attending to the deep distress that people are experiencing. And I think COVID-19 and other problems, such as you know, Black Lives Matter tells us, we didn't need them to tell us, but it tells the world. And particularly when people saw for themselves how George Floyd was so easily lynched, it tells the world how racism As much as we'd like to think otherwise, that racism continues to be one of the most horrific evils that people live with, that most people across the world live with, because of course, most people are not white. And so there are huge problems in this world, and psychologists can respond to these problems, but not using
1: mainstream psychology tools that's I I don't know I'm kind of lost for words um I I guess it's yeah I guess it's it's very powerful very meaningful and I think that um I guess what what's really important in in some of that is that that these ideas are just really important for us to start incorporating or thinking about as you know for for perhaps people who are training as as psychologists um and um, one thing I'm I'm wondering is that, you know, some people, th- th- this podcast is is not necessarily going to be for people who are just psychologists. And we're hoping that it will, you know, it, it will speak to anybody and everybody who would like to be able to um, access some of these ideas. But what I'm really aware of, you know, for, for me as a trainee, that sometimes there can be challenges integrating some community psychology ideas into practice, especially, you know, if we're learning in institutions where, um, you know coloniality is you know knitted into everything and so challenging that is doesn't mean we shouldn't and i and, and i i definitely personally will do my best to challenge where where and what i can but there are challenges and and i guess what advice would you have for people who are are perhaps wanting to to bring psych- community psychology into their work more um and wanting to think about you know de- decolonizing the curriculum or decolonizing their work how like how might they do that how where might they start
0: i think that question is a question of the future and for the future and i mean that sincerely and why i'm saying that is because i think juliet if we ask ourselves that question how can we as psychologists, as human beings turn toward coloniality, everywhere it pops up, whether that is in a health system or in an education system, whether that's in people's family life, whether that's um, in the political system, in the judicial system, et cetera, et cetera. If we can do that, then I think we are actually starting to create social spaces in which we can talk about reality, social reality, and that's huge. That then means that we can now lay down this bystanding, this turning away from social suffering that is so pervasive across the world. We can now turn toward the social realities. I think anyone can use community psych, liberation psych, and decolonial psychologies without even being trained in, in this. Why I say that is because, and this is a long-winded way to try to speak to your question. I, I'm not going to say that I'm going to answer your question, but I'm, I'm trying to speak to your question. No, 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 that's
1: okay. We've, okay. Got, we've got plenty and of time.
0: <laughs> I think that if I were now beginning my journey in psychology, what I would do is I would go south and what I mean by go south is actually I would read the original thinkers of community psychology who and, and these aren't only community psychology because the community psychology that I practice is a critical community psychology and is an interdisciplinary endeavor so it's not only or simply psychology so I would Plunge into Paulo Freire because I think that's indispensable. If you want to understand experiences of the oppressed, you cannot not read his work. It's seminal. I would plunge into Orlando Fals Border, the sociologist, because if you want to understand participation, you absolutely cannot escape reading Fals work on um, participatory action research. And I would read Maritza Montero, who I believe when I asked her, she was a community psychologist, she said, she paused and said, well, I think I started in political psychology, I I think she said. So I, I don't even think it matters where we start. I think it matters who informs our thinking and who shapes us. And going south means that we actually go to where decoloniality is a pivot point for the world. Decoloniality is something that emerged from the Global South because we didn't have the luxury of kidding ourselves that we lived in the Global North and were therefore free of oppression for those people who from the 19, I believe it's 65 Bangdong conference, from where we can draw a line and say, well, decoloniality started here or came out of that group of people. Decoloniality isn't an option, it's absolutely imperative. And so, for folks in the global north, I would discourage people from reading from starting with the global north ideas because quite often when these core ideas of critical community psychology start, they start in the south, and as they travel north, they become diluted. So I would encourage people to not um, plunge into the diluted version, but to go to the,
1: to the core, to where it's thick and luscious and juicy and incredible. And, those, and I, I'm hoping we'll be able to get some of those, write some of those books down and we can put them on the notes for, for the show so that anybody listening can can maybe look into those. Um, Absolutely. That's all right, Deanne. Um, I'm just, before um, we wrap up, I'm just wondering if there's anything else that um, you feel would be useful for people listening to this podcast to hear about either your work or... Things to do with community psychology. Just anything that that may be of value, given that some people may never even even heard of community psychology, or some people, you know, there's a, there's a wide spectrum of potential people listening to this. Is there anything else you'd like to say? You know,
0: us? one of the things that we haven't spoken about is um, a key or a core idea of Paula freres on the move to dialogue and critical community psychologists adhere to the value of dialogue as opposed to monologue for many reasons. One is that it's not often that we have social spaces in which all voices can be heard. And anyone who has an understanding of social power and how in the decolonial world, the coloniality of power—how some people have power and others don't have power—and the importance of that power, how that power crushes some human beings' lives—if if we are—if we can see social power at play—and it's really hard not to—you have to work very very hard not to see um, the coloniality of power. So we can see power at play. And one of the ways in which we can start to work against that construction of power, that hierarchy of power, is actually to create spaces where all human beings can contribute their voice in critiquing and understanding the social world. That's not a small endeavor. That's particularly difficult. And those of us in institutions, we're talking about health institutions like NHS, we're talking about educational institutions, Um, like the um, westernized university, we all know that all human beings in these institutions do not have equal ability to contribute their voice to shaping of the institutions. So one of the things that all of us can do is actually to push against this monologic way in which we engage with each other where people are permitted to speak only if they are speaking in ways that uphold the status quo. We must actually advocate for, we must be activists for creating opportunities for all voices to be heard. And we must be patient. We must realize that historically marginalized people have been told for 400 years that your voices don't count. And so if we start to create spaces where people can speak, it may take a while for people to trust those spaces and it may take a while for people to trust their own voice in those spaces,
2: Thank you, Diane. I guess you've been talking a lot about critiquing the social world and and the institutions and and traditional um, power imbalances, which I think is just so important um to hold on to um and and critical community psychology more more broadly. I just wanted to just before we finish just hear your thoughts or perspectives regarding your own critiques of community psychology, what would be your concerns or criticisms of the way that community psychology is done?
0: You or, or know, I wrote a book chapter called Community Psychology's Gaze a couple of years ago. And in it, I critiqued mainstream community psychology. And I argued that mainstream community psychology has lost its way. It's become sociogeny. So it's so focused on culture and so focused on the social that it's lost touch with psyche. So it's lost touch with psychic life. When I read some of the things that I have been asked to review or that I read, I can't find psychological life in it, if that makes any sense. And so there, there is a way that community psychology needs to be able to hold the social along with the psychological. So that's one of my critiques of it. Um, or, or that's, yes. And the other is in critical community psychology, we talk a lot about conscientization or the development of critical consciousness. And some people look come to that from the perspective that Consciousness is there, it, it, it's, it just needs to be mobilized, it doesn't need to be uncovered. And I disagree. I think based on what I was saying before, that people, we, we haven't had enough practice in articulating our voice, which I am tying to the unconscious, that we actually need to help people, support people, and ourselves need to develop the muscle to articulate, semi-conscious and unconscious experiences. So and community psychology today, increasingly people seem to um, be satisfied with a very surface layer of psychological life. So cognitions, for example, you know, what people are aware of. I am far more interested in what we're not aware of that is driving the racism, driving the classism, driving the coloniality um, that's so destructive
2: and i guess just with those concerns in mind where where do we go from there what what do we need to do differently when we practice in, in ways which we feel are, are in line with the community psychology approach and what do we need to make sure that we do
0: one of the litmus tests for us when we say that we are practicing community psychology is are we supporting the rehumanization of the world: Are we contributing? Are we reshaping social spaces that are along a horizontal line where every human being is equal to every other human being? That, to me, is the litmus test of of the work that we do.
1: Um Dan, I've got one more question. I've when you were. Um or when I was part of your lectures uh, three years ago, um, I remember there being a quote, and I can't remember whether it was your quote or whether it was just, like something you said or whether it was a quote of someone else, and it was something to do with disempowerment and empowerment and some of those ideas that you've been talking about and this idea of of kind of, um, I guess that we can sometimes... Uh, power can be at play and we're disguising it under the term of of, of empowerment and and there was there was a quote and I, I don't know whether you can remember I, you abso- know what I'm talking about? I
0: absolutely I'm smiling oh. Juliet because I'm remembering the conversation <laughs> and I'm remembering people go almost like people there was um this reaction of oh my goodness she couldn't she could not have said that we cannot empower other people and I, re- I remember it was somebody saying, "Well, as community psychologists, we can go out and help to empower people." And I said, "Oh no, 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 we can't." And and, and I think <laughs> Juliet, I don't remember exactly um, what in Freire's work I was referencing at that moment, but I do remember the spirit of it, which for me is that if you think about it, if we believe we are actually equal to another human being then as a human being, I cannot empower you. If I believe I am superior to you and have more power than you, then I then, the the logic of that is that then I can empower you. Because I believe I'm equal to other human beings and not superior or inferior, no one can empower me and I can't empower anybody. if I'm remembering, Freire was speaking about liberation, and Freire said, "No one liberates another, and no one liberates themselves." Yeah. And and and, and that, That's to it. me, <laughs> is also a, a, some insight on liberation. You cannot liberate. You cannot empower another person, and another power can, Another person cannot empower themselves. It takes a reshaping of the world. It takes a, we have to remove the blocks to people's lives. And those blocks that I'm referring to are structural, are systemic, our policies, our processes.
2: Thank you, Diane. Um, yeah, I guess I think I echo all, all of our sentiments and, and just looking at the chat as well, just in, in how powerful what you've shared tonight has been um and very thought-provoking comments about how we should be approaching our work, not only our um individual work, but our work with communities and, and our research and in liberating people who traditionally have not had the social power. And I think you've given us lots of things to think about about decolonization and power and marginalization and and, and also liberation. So so thank you. Um I think that's, that's all we've got time for tonight. I, I reckon we could talk for, for hours about this sort of stuff. And it's lovely to see your passion. I think it's a passion we all share. But um, thank you very much for, for coming along Thank and you,
0: Gina. To us and thank you, Juliet. And thank you, Jasmine. And thank you, Kirsty. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are Discovering Community Psychology. We're also over on Twitter at Discovering Community Psychology. And we'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas or thoughts on today's or any of our other episodes. So please do get in touch.